Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm having those moments more and more where I'm starting to feel old. And part of that is the fact that all these little children that were once in my youth group are now getting engaged and married. Officiated Paige and Tucker's wedding yesterday, and I'm sitting there watching her walk down the steps right before I like to go over the vows and pray with the bride and groom before the wedding separately together and watch Paige come down the steps, and it's like... I met her when she was 12 years old, just this tiny little thing. And it's just such a, a interesting thing to have that kind of shift and change. And now Allie's engaged. This is, a, this is an awesome, awesome time uh, as a minister to be a part of seeing people grow up and develop, uh, not just in their life, but in their faith. Um, we're going to be in the book of 1 Kings, uh, chapter 18, uh, verse 17 this morning. Uh, now, Kings is located right next to the book of First and Second Samuel. Um, and so it's a continuation of the kingly narrative of First and Second Samuel. Now, if, if you recall, we spent seven months in First and Second Samuel, and so I thought when we were planning out this year-long series throughout Scripture, I was like, we can skip over First and Second Samuel. We spent seven months there. Uh, but if that's not enough time, uh, there's this thing called iTunes and Mosaic Church of Clayton podcast. Just go on there. You can download the whole series, and you'll get your fill of First and Second Samuel. So how do we get from the book of Ruth uh, that Amy preached on a couple weeks ago to First kings. Well, Ruth is the great-grandmother of a guy named David. David, of course, was not born king of Israel. Um, in fact, when David is a little boy, this man named Saul is appointed king of Israel because why? Israel demanded to have a king. Their exact phrase are, we want to be like other nations. And so they had Samuel go before God and ask God to give them a king. And even though it, it, God told him it was going to be an awful idea, he gave them what they wanted. So they anoint Saul as king. Saul becomes king, but he's an, a bumbling idiot. And so uh, Samuel eventually anoints this guy named David to be king. It took many years, many struggles, but eventually David becomes king. He's the greatest king in Israel's history. He has a son named Solomon who also carries into this golden age of Israel's history as we know it. Kind of things start to get a little weird in there, and that's First and Second Samuel. Like uh, this phrase repeats over and over again, just how horrible the king is, king after king after king. And so David does this great work of uniting the southern and northern tribes of Israel. They have this great kingdom, and then it all falls apart after Solomon's son Rehoboam. And so First and Second Kings tells us tale after tale of the great terrible kings of Israel and the small number of good kings. And so there's this phrase that repeats again and again, and so such and such king became king, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So that's first and second kings, just to give you a little perspective. So that, that brings us to uh, where we are for our king for our scripture today. There's a guy named Ahab. Now let's introduce Ahab in the right way, um, because first kings chapter 16 verse 30 tells us, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those kings who came before him. You know this guy's not getting a gold star at class today. Like, he's that horrible of a guy. And it, it talks about that. It, it just is this horrible history. He made these horrible decisions again and again. So 
way to be known as like the most terrible human being in history from the book of, of scripture, basically is what they're saying. And this guy is not only corrupt, but he is just a bad mamma jamma because it said that God was utterly detested with him. But his, his probably worst mistake was the woman he ended up marrying. It was a Canaanite princess, a, a lady named Jezebel, which is a word that's synonymous with like everybody's like, ooh, Jezebel, right? Now, Jezebel uh, influenced her husband. In fact, she had a heavy hand on her husband to begin practicing uh, the worship of two Canaanite gods, of Baal or Baal in Asherah or Asherah. And, and so they, not only is, he in, is she influencing her husband to begin to worship these, but the scriptures begin to say that, that the king and, and his wife begin to influence the people of Israel to begin to worship Baal and Asherah. And so that's where we're going to pick up our scripture for today. Now, not only is uh, Jezebel pretty much an awful lady, uh, and not only is she introducing, the, introducing these uh, worship practices that are outside of the God of Israel into the people's lives and their lives, but then she begins systematically hunting down and killing all of God. God's prophets, except one, a man named Elijah. And so Elijah is going to be called out by God to go and confront Ahab and the people. And that's where we're going to pick up our tale in 1 Kings 18, 17. It says, when Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, O troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet with me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Now again, the people of Israel here, they fall into this cycle in their life. We talked about this last week in the book of Judges. They fall into this cycle. Right relationship with God, disobedience, turning back to God. Right relationship with God, disobedience, turning away from God, coming back to God. This repeats again and again and again. This time, their issue is they're worshiping these false gods of Baal and Asherah. Now, I will be the first proponent to say, I believe 100% in religious liberty for all people of all faiths, no matter what. I'm a huge proponent of that. Everyone should be able to practice their faith, their convictions as they feel led. But there's a slight slippery slope when it comes to the worship of Baal and Asherah, okay? So here's the deal. There were some practices that maybe were kind of questionable. You know, the whole don't have any other gods before God. I get that, right? That contradicts that. But then there was the unfaithfulness to their spouses. You see, uh, the worship of Baal and Asherah um, welcomed people into, let's just say, uh, expressing themselves sexually during worship, if you will. And so you can just see a ancient Hebrew man trying to convince his wife that we should really go worship Baal and Asherah. I mean, honey, if we really want to be faithful to this God, we really have to spend some time with these Baal uh, priestesses over here, right? What an idiot. I'm sure that conversation went over well. But that's not the end of it. You see, it's not only uh, an unfaithfulness to God and unfaithfulness to the spouse, but the problem is that Baal was the fertility God. And so if you wanted to have a good crop for the year, you had to make sacrifices. And these sacrifices, including the sacrifice of children, their own children. 
And so the Israelites find themselves in a place where they might be sacrificing a child in order to have a better crop to survive in life, sometimes even cutting and slashing themselves in order to spill blood to appease the gods. And so it's a slight slippery slope when you go to worshiping Baal to, you know, like child sacrifice. And so you can begin to see how Elijah's like, hey, everybody, there's a big issue here. Our hearts and souls are divided between this God and this God. What's at stake here is the heart and the soul of the people. You see, what we worship is an outward expression of our heart and our soul. So there's some issues going on here. Once you've committed yourself to one practice, why not take on all the other practices of these gods? When you've divided your heart between this thing and that thing, what's preventing you from dividing your heart to that thing and this other thing here? You see, the fracturing of our heart and soul destroys the very foundation of who we are. When we begin to divide our consciousness as we know it between whatever gods we might serve, you begin to see that there is a fracturing of who we are. We give our allegiance to so many lovers. We're tearing ourselves apart bit by bit. When we let this idea begin to sink in our lives, we begin to realize just how much we devote ourselves to so many different things. How do we keep up with the best practices for this God over this God? The Apostle Paul writes this in the book of Romans. He says, Yes, I am full of myself. After all, I've spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but act another way, doing things I absolutely despise. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyways. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in action. Something has gone deep wrong within me and gets the better of me every time. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I am at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can help me from this despair? You see, a heart and soul divided among itself will come to ruin. How can we give our hearts to God and give it away to so many other lovers and ideas and hopes and dreams? And when we're giving ourselves completely away to so many things, there's really nothing left for God in the first place. Of course, this doesn't happen overnight, right? It's not just a quick change that happens in our life. This is a process that takes place over time, decision after decision. And I believe one of the major ways that we place ourselves in such spiritual indifference in our life is our lack of interest and concern for spiritual direction. And this is all too easy in the consumerism that is American Christianity. Why do you actually have to put time into developing your faith and journey with Christ when you can just download a podcast? You can just read a book from an expert who's going to tell you these are the ten steps you have to take. And so we have become lazy in our spiritual lives. We simply depend on others or we regurgitate the information we hear on a Sunday until the next Sunday. And it's just a facade. Maybe the best word to summarize this we talked about a couple weeks ago is indifference. It's all too easy to let the spiritual undertones of our lives be that of someone else's. And of course, there are varying degrees of this. Uh, A fascinating thing happened uh, back in 2013. Uh, A red and blue 16-seater plane uh, took off in northern England, and it turned and went a 500-mile course up the coast. 
Now, from the, from the ground, this would look like any other routine flight in England. But, but upon turning and, and making this 500-mile round trip, history was made. Because after this flight had turned, the pilot turned over the controls to a command center on the ground, and the first remote control plane, passenger plane, was flown. And they're saying that this is aviation future. They're saying in the next five to ten years possibly, um, commercial jets are going to be run by essentially remote control on the ground. And it's really fascinating. As a person that flies a lot, it's really fascinating to hear about that. Uh, But really what they're trying to get away from is the mere fact that most accidents in airplanes happen because of human error. They're saying that, that pilots have become so dependent on all the automated systems within the airplane that they begin to check out. They don't know what is in play and what is not in play, and what begins to fail is human failure that they depend so much on autopilot. And so the thought is, remove human error by replacing it with remote controls, (laughs) and the answer is taking place. This is where the industry is heading. You see, I think for many of us, we put our lives on autopilot. We put our spiritual lives on autopilot. And the primary causation of the division of our heart and mind is this. We become so complacent, so half-hearted, so meh, that that a genuine belief in things just turns into autoplay, autopilot all the time. And we don't do this in a a malevolent type of way, but we, we develop this because everything in life is good, right? Everything is fine. Life is good. Work is fine. Character is fine. The way I look is fine. The way that I use my time is fine. My heart is fine. My soul is fine. And all of a sudden, with all our systems in check, autopilot begins to kick in, and we live day to day without a development of our consciousness. Not just days, but months and weeks and years go by. And this isn't to say that life shouldn't have ebbs and flows. This isn't to say that we shouldn't live in the green pastures that God desires for our life, that we don't always live in that time. This doesn't mean that we should always live in the valley of the shadow of death. But faith is an ebb and flow journey that you can't simply cut on autopilot and coast through. And yet we convince ourselves that everything is fine. We, we leave our heart and our soul untamed, untapped, unchanging. We simply maintain And see, everything is fine brings us to a place like Israel where we waver between two opinions. We can't pick one side or the other. Life is not picturesque. It's not dangerous. Life is simply this maintaining even kill of the sinner. I've always been the type of person that has said, uh, don't cry over spilled milk. <laughs> um, I, I guess my, my life mantra is Bob Marley's every little thing is going to be all right. Uh, and so living in the house of toddlers, uh, there might be some spilled things every hour. Like every hour it seems to happen. Uh, and we have hardwood floors or like fake hardwood floors at our house. Uh, and you know what the best thing is to clean up liquid off hardwood floors? college towels. We thought we were going to get rid of those things years ago. We've got a whole stack of them, and those, those things will clean up water in a jiffy. But it's funny, with all the advancements in technology, you know, the best absorbent is still something that nature gives us, a sponge. Like this one that was taken from the depths of the ocean. I think I got this from the Dollar General, right? A sponge is, is the most fascinating thing because it doesn't matter what the liquid is. You simply plunge it deep into whatever the surface is. You squeeze it, you rub it in, and it absorbs whatever you need it to. And I like for us to think that our lives are like sponges. 
that what we import into our lives really does matter. And so sometimes we take some really nasty things and begin to import it into our lives. Because whatever we place before our lives matters greatly. And so I want you to consider what are you importing into your life? What are you placing before your heart and your soul every single day? You see, the people of Israel are placing before them not just the the concept of Baal and Asherah, but they're placing before them the concept of completely different worship practices. Worship practices that contradict the commands given to them. Worship practices that contradict the very pledges they make to their spouses. Uh, Worship practices that even tell them to take a life in order to receive a better crop for the year. What we import into our lives matters. And so when we commit ourselves to so many different things, when we place before our life so many different gods, so many different things that consume us, we begin to soak it into our heart and our mind. And what we receive looks something more like this, muddy and murky. And so consider for yourself what you put in your life. Negativity, fear, egotism, self-centeredness, violence, busyness, Entitlement, apathy, half-heartedness, xenophobia, homophobia. The list goes on and on of the things that we place before our lives and whatever we put before it, it imports into our life. The great Nelson Mandela once said that I am the master of my fate, the captain of my destiny. I consider this to be true in light of what we import into our lives. So let's go back to the sponges for just a second. I want you to consider that this heart, this bowl right here, is is your heart and your mind and your soul. So what we import into our lives really does matter. And so if we consider that what Christ has called us to is to live in a particular way, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to not be consumed with the kingdoms we make for this world, Christ calls us to simply soak in his character into our lives and import it in. problem is we put Christ before our lives, but then in turn we also import all these other things that consume our life and time. And all of a sudden that heart and mind that was so decisive and clear becomes so murky, so dark, so jaded. And there's nothing we can do. We can, we can plunge this sponge into our life and try to consume up the murkiness that we have created in our lives. But no matter what we do, no matter what we try, it's still murky and muddy and dark and jaded and consumed with a God that is so different than the one that calls us to a different way. So what do we do? We find ourselves that we are in such a divided devotion to God. At the very core of this matter is a theological issue. It's a theological issue to help us realize that with our consciousness, with our mind and our soul, we can't split between so many gods, so many lovers, so many things. Nadia Boltz Weber writes this, Don't we piece our hearts out to so many unrequited love? So many false promises and self-indulgences. And doesn't the toxicity of it all preserve those little pieces of our hearts like formaldehyde? 
And so let's just be honest. We whore ourselves out to so many things. We lay down with so many great number of lovers that we can't even keep them straight. And we certainly can't say that we're solely faithful to this God. And we want to make it work. We want the perks of that God. We want the grace. We want the forgiveness. We want the mercy. We want the healthy community. But then we also want these other things. And so maybe the text from Israel, a heart divided, isn't that much of a foreign concept to us. We stand with Elijah before us saying, make a decision. Follow one or the other. Let's see where the narrative continues and and listen to this. It's more of a narrative reading in verse 22. It says, Then Elijah said, I am the only one of God's prophets left, and there are 450 prophets of Baal. Let the Baal prophets bring up two oxen. Let's cut one and butcher it. Lay it on the altar of this firewood, but don't ignite it. I'll take the other oxen. I'll cut it up and lay it down the wood, but neither will I light it. Then you pray to your gods, and I will pray to God. And the God who answers with fire proves to be true, in fact, is God. And all the people agree, that's a good plan. Let's do it. And Elijah told the Baal prophets, choose your oxen and prepare it. You go first. You are the majority. Then pray to your God, but don't light fire to it. So they took the oxen that had been given to them. They prepared it on the altar. They prayed to Baal. They prayed all morning long. Oh, Baal, answer us. But nothing happened. Not so much as a whisper of a breeze. Desperate, they jumped and stomped on the altar that they had made. By noon, Elijah started mocking him. This is a great piece of scripture. And began taunting them, saying, Call a little louder. He is God, after all. Maybe he's off meditating somewhere other. Maybe he's gotten involved in some sort of project. Or maybe he's on vacation. You don't suppose he overslept, do you? And needs to be waking up. They prayed louder and louder, cutting themselves with swords and knives, a ritual that was common to them, until they were covered with blood. This went on until well past noon. And they used every religious trick and strategy they knew to make them something happen on the altar, but nothing happened, not as much as a whisper, not a flicker of a response. It's a really fascinating text if you think about it. Everybody gets the concept here, right? You take a bull, I take a bull. You make an altar, I make an altar. We're going to cut it up. Hope you weren't hungry for lunch, by the way. Just the thought of blood spilling over an altar. Here's what I want you to do. You pray, you do your thing. And if your God answers by fire, he's God. And the text says they prayed earnestly. They danced. They became so desperate, again, to slash themselves, to make blood flow, that this would appease their God and their God would answer. It doesn't help that Elijah's being somewhat of a jerk face by mocking them the whole time. Please don't take that away from this text as what we should do. But nothing answers. And so Elijah turns and comes. Verse 30, it tells us this. Then Elijah said to the people, come here to me. They came to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes, the descendants of Jacob. To whom the word of the Lord came, saying, You shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seats of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill up four jars of water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trenches. 
the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that your servant has done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me. So that the people will know that you are Lord, are God, and that they are turning their hearts back to you. I often look back at my time in college and wonder how I didn't end up in the morgue. Um, We tried to fill our times with a lot of different things, boredom with school and work, and so we went on a lot of adventures. And probably the craziest thing we ever did um, was jump into storm-surged waters of the Cape Fear. So there was this spot on the Cape Fear that we would go to often, and uh, we would swim, we'd fish. There were some islands in the middle that we would swim to. There was a rope swing that we'd swing out on into the water. Except this time, we went down to the river, and a tropical storm had just come through. And so the water level was about 15 feet higher than than normal. And um, you would have thought, we would have said, let's just come back next week. Uh, But no, we didn't. Uh, We decided we'd jump into the water. And this one particular spot we always went to, uh, when we jumped in the water, it would take us about two minutes to float down to the middle of the river to this huge island that was in the middle, about two minutes to do this. This same spot on this particular day uh, took us all of 20 seconds to get to the island. And it wasn't an island, it was a five-foot patch in the middle of this raging water. And so it was one of those moments where you say, there are crazy friends, and then there are, I should really stay away from you type of crazy friends. And that's what I feel like is happening with Elijah in this moment. As the assistants are pouring water on here, they're like, this is crazy, and then there's like Elijah crazy. Why is he having us pour all this water? And so Elijah does everything like the prophets before him had done. He makes the sacrifice, he prepares everything, but he has them dig this trench around it. They begin to douse the sacrifice in water. Not just one time, not just two times, but three times. He does this fascinating thing of soaking in water. Whatever he's doing, it's for this great big thing. And then it all comes down to this amazing prayer that Elijah brings forth. And he prays to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel. He's literally retelling them and reminding them of their story as he's praying. I like to think that Elijah had one eye open while he's praying, you know. The God of Isaac, Jacob, Esau. You remember who I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, y'all know who I'm talking about? But Elijah wants nothing more than for it to be emphatically clear that God is the only God worth serving and following. And so Elijah prays this prayer, and, and you can see the earnestness in him. He begs, he pleads God. He says, answer me, God. Why? So that the people will know that you are God, and so they will what? Turn their hearts back to you again. And 1 Kings 18.38 tells us, The fire of the Lord fell and, and burned up the sacrifice in the wood, the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Just in case you hadn't learned how zealous God is, how jealous God is for God's people, he burns up everything that's in the sacrifice, including all the water that's there. And I think what this text is trying to tell us is just how jealous, just how zealous God is for us. Not out of motivation of judgment and hatred, but out of a motivation of love. 
God's love for us overflows. It pours into our lives. It's a love that desires to consume and to transform us, to show us that there really only needs to be one God in our life because that God will guide us in the direction that we need for life. That God will bring us wholeness and purity. That God will bring us to such a wonderful place that we cannot find if we divide ourselves among so many gods. How long will we waver between two opinions? You see, the text that Elijah gives us is this. We must choose one or the other. Back up to verse 21, he says, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. The word is follow. Jesus had a word for this. It's the Greek word akulutheu. It means to follow, to be the same as. You see, the invitation to follow Christ is an invitation to fidelity, to loyalty, to faithfulness to God alone. So consider when Jesus calls the disciples to follow him. It's a call for them to leave behind everything. Their work, their dreams, their comfort. So that they could find new work, new dreams, and a new level of comfort that they could not find apart from this Christ. But the problem is that the reason we have so dualistic lives is that we won't want that. We want what we can control, what we can manage, what we can hold. And so the challenge of Elijah, the challenge of Christ, is that in order to follow God solely, we have to give up our agenda. We have to relinquish control. Period. There is no one or the other. James tells us God opposes the proud. He resists those who love control. So maybe the challenge for many of us this morning is it's time to let go of control. It's time to stop managing and micromanaging our lives in the way that we feel like is best, murking up things and maybe allow God to do all God needs to do. You see, when we can make that choice to follow Christ only, God can go at work in our lives. God can begin to clear up the murkiness, the old, the nastiness, the ugliness, the brokenness of our hearts and our souls, and a new powerful thing can take place. This isn't going to be found in a self-help book. Don't get me wrong, there's thousands out there for you to go by. But in reality, when God's love fills our life, God begins to empower us to make the change in our life that needs to take place. And so all this stuff, all this gunk, all this mess, are we willing to let God take it and go with it? Because we can try our best again to soak up everything in here, but it's still going to be murky and nasty and gross. <laughs> it's really gross. But see, the work of God is not to try to take and simply clear these things out. The work of God is fantastic. The work of God begins like this. That God begins to take his character and begin to place it into our lives and begins to take his power, his strength, and his love to take all the things that we have created and made murky and nasty to make us whole and to make us new. So what are you willing to do this morning? Are you willing to continue to murky up your life? Are you willing to allow God to begin to cleanse and transform? And I think the challenge of Elijah is this. 
If what we import into our lives matters, if what we place before our heart and our soul matters, maybe the work of God into our lives is to be more intentional about importing God into our lives. Replacing the murkiness and nastiness with something that's clear and filled with compassion and love. You see, the the interesting piece about this scripture, the uh, non-Sunday school lesson of this scripture, uh, the next verse, it says that Elijah has all of the uh, 900 prophets rounded up and eradicated. So I'm not suggesting you go do that in your life. But maybe there's some things in your life that you need to eradicate. Maybe there's some habits, some relationships. Some things that you import into your life that instead of fighting it and thinking you can manage it, maybe you need to eradicate it from your life and allow God to fill it with something new. So the story of Mount Karma concludes with a challenge. The Spirit of God is within us. Can we identify these triggers? Can we identify these things? And can we step forward with soul fidelity to a God who desires to make us new and whole and beautiful? Let's pray together. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.